sermons from Union Chapel Baptist Church. So we're going to continue our series through the book of Matthew. We're in Matthew 12, starting in verse 33, going through verse 45. And the title of today's message is Good Fruit. Good Fruit. Uh, Last week, we saw the grace of God to forgive every sin and every blasphemy. Um, But in order to receive forgiveness, we saw that you must trust in Jesus as your God, Savior, and King. And if you don't, if you're not trusting in Jesus, you are in effect working for the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom in opposition to God. And Jesus warns us, if you stay on that road, if you stay on the road of self-justification, if you make excuses why Jesus is not God, why he's not the Messiah, your heart will grow cold. It will grow hard to the truth. And then you may end up like the Pharisees who went so far as to call the Son of God, who they called the promised Son of David, they called Jesus satanic. And thus they blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And at that point, Jesus says they are unforgivable. God, in essence, has handed them over into their sin. They will not repent nor believe no matter what Jesus says or what miracles he may do. Their heart has become so hard to the good news of Jesus that they see it and they call it bad news. So this week, Jesus continues his conversation with the Pharisees and he explains to us the nature of the human condition. Namely, he goes to the root of the Pharisees' problem and ultimately to the root of all humanity's problem. The problem is is not that we don't have enough evidence for God. It's not that we don't have enough proof that Jesus is the Messiah. The problem is that we have bad hearts. And because of their bad hearts, the bad hearts of the Pharisees, they spoke blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. They attributed the power of Jesus to Satan instead of recognizing Jesus was working by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so today, likewise, key to much of our our passage is understanding the work of the Holy Spirit, specifically the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer, in the Christian. So we need to understand, I want to take us to Ezekiel 36, 26, before we dive into our passage, because this is foundational for understanding what's going on with the heart change that bears good fruit. So Ezekiel 36, 26 talks about the work of the Spirit in the new covenant through Jesus. It says, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. So this is the background of the, of the verses that we'll discuss today. And understanding and remembering this concept will guide us into a deeper and richer understanding of Jesus' teaching. And today we'll have three main sections. First, we'll look at fruit from the heart. Fruit from the heart in 33 through 37. And then we'll see, secondly, Jesus is the greater Jonah, and Jesus is greater than Solomon, 38 through 42. And then we'll end part three. We'll look at the clean but empty and evil house. The clean but empty and evil house in 43 through 45. So first... Fruit from the heart. Jesus explains 
It starts with a, with a metaphor in verse 33. Jesus says, Either make the tree good and its fruit will be good, or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. So in Matthew 12, 33, we have the image of two trees, one good and one bad. Perhaps you would not know which tree is good or which one is bad just by looking at them. They are both growing. They're both producing fruit. Now, if you were the one planting and growing the tree and say that your sole purpose for it was to grow apples, you want an apple tree, you want it to grow apples, you don't need any shade, you don't need its wood, you have all those things taken care of, you simply want a nice, crisp apple. And so when you go and pick the apple and bite into it, you will know immediately whether that's a good tree or a bad tree. And perhaps when you bite into the apple, and it's terrible, it's disgusting. And for a moment, pretend that the tree could talk. And he and the tree begins to try and defend himself for producing this bad apple. And he, he starts saying things like, well, I have nice and beautiful leaves. Again, we don't need the leaves. We don't need the shade. He goes on and on about things that he can provide you that you don't need. And you might say back to the tree, like John the Baptist said to the Pharisees, the only thing you're good for is to be chopped down and thrown into the fire. I planted you to go grow good fruit, not do anything else. So remember, Jesus knew the thoughts of the Pharisees back in Matthew 12, 25. He, he could see the hearts of, the, of what, they, what their intentions were. He knew that what they said about him overflowed from their hearts, thus showing them that they are bad trees. The Pharisees cannot appeal to their quote-unquote good deeds. They can't appeal to the leaves. They can't appeal to the shade that they may offer. They can't justify themselves in light of their bad fruit of calling Jesus satanic. There is no other excuse they can make. They cannot appeal to anything else. They can't say, I can't be condemned by God because I'm a Pharisee. I'm a teacher of God's word. I'm in the lineage of Abraham. He is my father. I follow all the traditions. I don't work on the Sabbath. Which, remember, they missed the point, right? They made the Sabbath into actually a labor-intensive thing to keep. They did not rest, and they actually were supposed to show mercy on the Sabbath, but they didn't. They followed all the traditions. They might say, I fasted twice a week, which we saw how they missed the timing of the fasting. Jesus, the Messiah, the King, was there with them. They were supposed to be celebrating, not fasting and mourning. The Pharisees might have said, well, I give money to the temple. Jesus pointed out how they pridefully only did that to receive the praise of men. True followers of Jesus, those who trust in him as their God, Savior, and King, God transforms them into good trees who produces good fruit. In other words, God transforms them into a new creation and enables and empowers them to obey, to follow the narrow path of righteousness. 
And before anyone became a follower of Jesus, before anyone became a good tree, we were all bad trees. We were all producing bad fruit. We were all people who did not worship God. We did not submit to his kingship or his commands. We did what was right in our own eyes. And perhaps some of us may have trusted in our own good deeds to save us. And so while people may try to decorate a tree, like we, we just did last night, we decorated our Christmas tree at, ha- at the house. Christmas is coming up, and uh, we put the ornaments on there. We made it look nice and pretty. Uh, but imagine you get a diseased tree. Imagine you get a tree that gave off an awful odor, and you bring that in the house. Now, I don't know why you do that, but you, for the sake of the illustration, you bring it in the house. No amount of decorations is going to take the stench away, right? So you may try to deceive others from your true nature. You may try to decorate yourself, going to church, singing songs, putting on a smile. But if you don't have a changed heart, if you haven't submitted your life to King Jesus, your words and actions will eventually expose you for what kind of tree you are. And all this time, while you may fool a lot of people, you're not fooling God. Again, the work of the Holy Spirit to give you a new heart, making you into a good tree, happens not by working harder or willing yourself to become a good tree, but it is the work of God, enabling you to humble yourself, come to Jesus and saying to him, I need you. I trust in you as my God, my Savior, my King. Make me new. And because the Pharisees had a bad heart, Jesus calls them in verse 34, he says, brood of vipers. How can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. Instead of being like children of Abraham, faithfully following God, Jesus calls them brood of vipers or offspring of vipers. Now, calling someone a viper, calling someone a snake is not flattering even today and was likely even worse in Jesus' time. For it was fairly widespread and ancient view that offspring of vipers indicated the utmost moral depravity. For Herodias in the 5th century B.C. wrote that the newborn Arabian vipers actually chewed their way out of their mother's wombs, killing their mothers in the process. The point Jesus is making is clear. He says, how can you speak good things when you are evil? The point is that they can't. They can't speak good things. Jesus is explaining why, are they, why, why they call Jesus satanic. He explains that they are bad trees. He's pointing out their bad fruit by the words they say. As Psalm 140 verse 2 says, Those who plan evil in their hearts, they stir up wars all day long. They make their tongues as sharp as a snake's bite. Viper's venom is under their lips. Well, Jesus explains in another metaphor in verse 35. He says, A good person produces good things from the storeroom of good, and an evil person produces evil things from the storeroom of evil. Just like a bad tree produces bad fruit, the storeroom of evil produces evil things. The storeroom of your heart is what you treasure, what you value. As Jesus taught in Matthew 6, 21, he says, 
For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you value, what you treasure, that will be evident in your words. Following Jesus is not just about external rituals or a checklist of do's and don'ts. It is more fundamentally a change of affections, a change of desires, a change of your very heart. No longer desiring the things of the world, but desiring to trust in God, desiring to follow Him in His ways. And this heart change, again, takes the Spirit of God working in us when we trust in Jesus as our God and Savior and King. So Jesus is saying that what we say matches our hearts. What we say matches what we value. What we say matters because it is a fruit. It is the treasure from our hearts. They are connected. And it matters what kind of heart you have because verse 36, Jesus says, I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. While we should choose our words wisely, we should not be careless with our words. For with our words we can build up, or with our words we can tear down. However, from the context of what Jesus is talking about, he's talking about something more, much more serious than just a flippant or careless word. Jesus is, is concerned here, as we've seen, we, he's concerned with the root of the problem. Namely, making sure one's heart is right with Jesus. Because again, if your heart is evil, if you have not trusted in Jesus, then no amount of censorship will be able to keep you from saying what's in your heart. Because from the heart flows your words. So now what does it mean when Jesus says, every careless word they speak? Now, we, I, we have the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible uh, translation up on the screens, and I'm actually ordering, uh, going to order this week, uh, the book of Matthew in the CSB translation that has like a journal and you can write notes on it. And if you would like that, let me know when you can get you one. Um, and it's a great, it's a great translation. Uh, a lot of the mo- most modern translations are very good. Um, but here, as with most translations, most translate this word as careless. But in the context, I think it is better translated as worthless, or that's how the NET translates it, or a useless or empty word, as the NIV does. Uh, Let me show you by example. Uh, This same word is used in James 2.20. So in James 2.20, they translate it as useless here. So he says, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Right? So it's not careless, it's useless, because faith that doesn't lead to life change means that your faith is useless. It's empty, because saving faith, real faith, gives you a new heart to obey God. It produces good works. So in the same way, how you talk about Jesus reflects what you believe about him. So back in Matthew twelve thirty six, when we see the careless or the empty or the useless words, those are referring to the Pharisees' words that spoke against Jesus, showing, that the, showing their hearts toward him. And the empty words that they said, 
They said that Jesus was performing miracles by the power of Satan. They rejected Jesus' good works. They rejected the good news, and therefore their words are useless. They're empty. In verse 36, we know it's so serious. Verse 36 says that they will have to give an account. They will have to pay for, that, for the sin debt on the final judgment. They will have to pay for that sin debt because that's what's meant when it says by giving an account for every careless word, every empty word that you say about Jesus. You have to pay for that sin debt. They don't have to pay for the rejection of Jesus. Now, this is the warning for everyone. If you reject Jesus, you have to take the punishment for those words of rejection, which are rooted in your heart. We should heed this warning. Repent and turn to Jesus. As we saw last week, every sin and blasphemy can be forgiven. And Jesus offers again this good news because he warns us, he warns us in this that so we can take hold of salvation. Verse 37, the good news is that for by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Again, in the context, we know that Jesus isn't saying that you can argue your way out of punishment. You can't, that you can't be a, the most fantastic lawyer in front of the divine judge, and you can't convince him to let you be acquitted. He, you can't convince him by your words to let you go. That's not what he's saying. He's saying your words can acquit you. They can spare you from eternal punishment if by your words you confess Jesus to be Lord and Savior. As Paul says in Romans 10, 9, it says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness. And one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. And we see here, it's almost like Paul is on the same page as Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Because he is. The heart overflows to one's speech. It's all about the heart. Believe in your heart that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, the King, the Lord. And God transforms your hearts, makes you into a good tree to bear good fruit, to witness and proclaim in your words and your deeds what is in your heart. And if you don't do this, and Jesus says in verse 37, if, you're, if your words do not confess Jesus, then verse 37, your words will condemn you because your words reflect your heart. And if which if you have a bad tree, if your, heart, if your words are coming from a bad storage room, if your words are overflowing with the rejection of Jesus, then there will be condemnation. And again, it doesn't have to be that way. Jesus can change the worst of trees. He can change the worst of storage rooms. He can make you completely new. And this whole section is Jesus making this dichotomy. He's making these two kingdoms, these two choices. You're either with him or you're against him. Look back in verse 33. You're either a good tree or you're a bad tree. The Pharisees thought they were a good tree. Jesus had to show them that they were a bad tree because they rejected him and thus rejected God. 
Most of us in this room, I would assume you would say that you're a good tree. Most of us are, in fact, different than the Pharisees. I, I believe most of us, after talking with many of you, that we believe in our hearts, that we have confessed with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that we have said, God, that He is my God and Savior, that Jesus has changed our lives. Our faith is not empty. We are bearing good fruit of obedience. We still mess up. We still sin, but we repent. We, we turn back to God and depend on Him to help me fight my sin. So for us, this passage reminds us who we are. It shows us and reminds us how we became who we are. That God made us into who we are. It reminds us that what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be producing good fruit. So when we look out on our own branches, and we look out on our own fruit, we all have some branches that need pruning. Specifically, what we say. Or better yet, more specifically, for a lot of us, what we type. What you type, what you share, is an overflow from your heart. It shows what you value. Does what you post show that you value Jesus? Value His ways? Show that you want people to come to know Him? Or do your posts on social media show something else? Now, if they show and reveal something else, a different value, a different priority, the solution is not merely to stop posting those things. That only addresses the external. We want to address the internal, address the value, address the priority. And then once you have the priority straight, then you will naturally, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be able to speak, to type, to share good fruit. Because you have a good heart. So before you post, just ask yourself, will this help or will this hurt my opportunities to share the gospel with my friends and family? Moving on to our second section here. Jesus greater than Jonah and Solomon. Verse 38. We see here the Pharisees will respond to Jesus. We already know that they are bad trees producing bad fruit. They misunderstand the miracles of Jesus. They don't think he is the Messiah. They attribute his power to Satan. But verse 38, some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Of course you do. All the signs and miracles, healing, casting out demons, teaching with authority wasn't good enough for them. Jesus answers them. Verse 39. An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus will give them a sign. But since they are an evil and adulterous generation, 
in that they have rejected Jesus and thus have rejected and been unfaithful to God, the sign of his death and resurrection will not convince them either. But instead, it will be another sign of judgment against them. Now, this is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew we see a hint at his coming death. And just as Jonah was thrown in the water to atone for sin and calm the wrath of God, calm the storm, Jesus, the greater Jonah, will be crucified. Not for his sin, but for the sin of the world, calming the wrath of God. And just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, of which, if you think about it, you go back and read, the fish ultimately brought Jonah salvation because Jonah was sinking down to the depths of the sea and the fish swallows him up and spits him up on dry land. Jesus, as the greater Jonah, will be dead in the earth for three days, be raised to life by which he will bring salvation to the world. And Jesus' point here, he says, if the Ninevites repented at Jonah's preaching, how much more should those who have listened to Jesus' preaching have repented? Because Jesus is far greater than Jonah. Again, Jesus is comparing Israel to the Gentiles. Like Jesus has said before in Matthew eleven twenty one, He said, If the miracles that were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented in sackcloth and ashes long ago. So in Matthew twelve forty one, the Gentile Ninevites did repent at the preaching of Jonah. Thus the people there hearing the, the greater Jonah, the people in front of Jesus hearing him, the ultimate prophet, they have no excuse. They will be judged on the last day. And Jesus gives another example, verse 42. He says, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus points out how even the Gentile queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, a kingdom in southern Arabia, that's in 1 Kings 10.9, she actually blessed God. She blesses the Lord of Israel because of the wisdom he gave to Solomon. And Jesus proclaims that, he is wiser than Solomon. He is the greater king than Solomon. And they still don't listen to him. So the point Jesus is making in the context, the Pharisees ask him for a sign, proving that he is working by the power of the Holy Spirit and not by Satan. No amount of evidence will satisfy them. Jesus is the greater Jonah. He will be resurrected. But that won't matter to them. He's greater than Solomon. But they don't get it. And thus there will be condemnation at the final judgment for not submitting to the lordship of Jesus. And because of their rejection of him, not only will they incur final judgment, there will also be consequences in this life as well. As Jesus gives them a parable to explain what life will be like for people that reject him. In verse 43, our last section. He says, when an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through waterless places looking for rest but doesn't find any. Then it says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. Returning, it finds the house vacant, 
swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there. As a result, that person's last condition is worse than the first. And this is key. Jesus explains that this is a parable. That's how it will be. That's how it will also be with this evil generation. So I don't want you to get caught up in the details of the unclean spirit, demonic possession, what's going on. Jesus is using this, this idea of the unclean spirit, leaving and coming back and making the situation worse than it was. He says, this is how it will be with the evil generation. This is how it will be with those who reject him. And the warning could go uh, two ways and kind of maybe a blend. So first, here's the warning for us. First, the eternal warning. So like the other warnings that we have seen, to those who have seen the miracles, they have seen Jesus. He's the greater David, the greater Jonah, the greater Solomon. They will be judged and held accountable to the great evidence they were privileged to. Thus, in this light, they experience some of the blessings, experience healings, they experience miracles. So in the parable, their house is being put in order. Is being cleaned up. They're around Jesus, hearing his teaching, seeing his miracles. They might have even been healed physically by him. But ultimately, some will reject Jesus as the Messiah, and thus they will leave their house vacant. Although they may be healed physically, they are still spiritually vacant. They may, they may, may look good on the outside. Their house may be put in order, but they haven't come to true spiritual salvation. And thus, they will be judged more harshly on the final judgment. So the warning is for us that we should not take the, the evidence for granted. Don't just be amazed at Jesus' miracles. Don't just come to Jesus for physical healing and to get physical blessing. Because we must remember we cannot be neutral to Jesus. We cannot just come to him for physical blessing, but we, we must give our all to him. Because we are either for him or against him. There is no neutral ground. And he has called us to worship him. Join the kingdom of God. Trust in him with our eternal salvation. Repent of our sin. Because if you don't, the final judgment, your last condition, will be worse than the first. Worse than any judgment here on earth. Now the second warning, I think, could be at play here, is that the one that affects your real life in the here and now. That is that if you continue in the rejection of Jesus, they will continue to get worse spiritually, becoming more and more evil as time goes on. And perhaps, specifically, Jesus uses the imagery of cleaning up the house to point out the error of the Pharisees and many today. The error that those who clean up their house they make everything look good on the outside. They put decorations on a diseased Christmas tree. In trying to clean up their life, trying to clean up their life without Jesus, without the indwelling of the Spirit, their house is vacant. And they are actually making themselves worse. In trying to earn their salvation, in rejecting Jesus, they open themselves up to more evil. Their heart will grow cold 
and they will be worse than they were at first. Listen, you don't need to clean up your house. You need to come to Jesus and get a new house. A house with a good tree out front whose limbs are weighed down by good fruit. A house that is overflowing with good treasures. A house with a throne inside. And that throne is for Jesus. Don't wait any longer. Don't wait for your heart to be so hardened by your rejection of Jesus that you look back on your life and you say, how did I get here? How have I done all these things that I said I would never do? Again, no matter what you've done, you can be acquitted by your words that overflow from a good heart, a heart that humbly admits that you're a sinner before God in need of salvation. God is gracious to forgive. For Jesus died, was buried three days, taking the punishment for your sin, and rose again, defeating death and sin so you can be victorious over death and sin. If you've already been given a new house, remember your body is a temple for the Lord, a dwelling for His presence, working in you to bear good fruit. And the question for us then is, how can we bear good fruit this week? How can we live? How can we speak? How can we share as someone with a changed heart? Thanks for listening. For more information, see unionchapelbaptist.org.